Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies, it's the passion of the vice. Mel Gibson is a violent cop in S. Craig Zahler's Dragged Across Concrete. Keep your hands raised. Cooperate. Isabelle Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz play the stalking game in Neil Jordan's thriller Greta. Greta, everybody's lonely. And for Film Club, he doesn't just break murder cases, he smashes them. It's Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from Adam Woodward. Hello. And Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Hi. How are we doing today, guys? Very well, yeah. yeah moderately well. Are we feeling on the good cop or the bad cop side of the spectrum this morning? I'm feeling pretty good, positive cop mm-hmm. today, yeah. Optimistic cop. I am a morally ambiguous cop. Well, we've got the films for you, Sophie. (laughs) Maybe they're they're not ambiguous enough for me. Yeah, I think in total we have four or five hours of ambiguous cop dramas to get through today. Should we crack on? Yes. Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are two cops suspended from the force after footage of their unorthodox tactics is leaked to the media. Now, without a badge, out of work and facing financial troubles at home, they descend into the criminal underworld using their contacts and strong-arm methods for self-gain. Keep your hands raised. Cooperate. If you make any sudden moves, you will be executed. If the police show up, everyone will be executed. Do not prioritize money over having a heartbeat. Do you understand? Yes. Mr. Edmington. Sir. Are there any employees in the back? If so, get them right now. You have 20 seconds. No, there, there is no one in the back. Everyone is here in the front. A clip from Dragged Across Concrete there. Adam, this is S. Craig Zahler's third long genre exercise in a row after Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block 99. Were we excited for Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn doing a police brutality drama? Yeah, I know I was. Um, I'm going to do my usual thing of claiming that we saw this together at the Venice Film Festival. We did, indeed, yeah. we did. okay, great. Uh, I think it was the last thing I actually saw at the festival, so mm-hmm. I was a little bit fatigued at that point. Yeah. And I don't remember it gripping me or arresting me in the way that I quite wanted it to, but it's one of those films that is a real slow burn. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've been thinking about it a lot more since. Mm-hmm. And 
would love to actually revisit it. Didn't get a chance to for this, but I feel like there is a lot going on. There's a lot of subtext. Mm -hmm. On the surface, it is this sort of hard-boiled procedural. You've got these gritty cops who are basically going kind of off, off the beat a little bit and submerging themselves into this criminal underworld. The parts of the movie I enjoyed the most are when you've got Gibson and Vaughan in kind of stakeout mode and they're in this car just kind of chatting and passing the time. And, yeah, those bits for me are really where Zala's script comes into its own. Um, he's dealing with a lot of, like, contemporary social issues, although the film feels oddly... I mean, there is elements of it which root it in the present day, but it feels like a kind of film which is definitely harking back to the 70s in particular, maybe echoing or, or mirroring some of the kind of social anxieties and issues of that time, which obviously most of them are kind of still relevant today. Mm-hmm. It's a really kind of cynical, quite kind of abrasive film in some ways. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a bit of a step up for him as a director. Really? Personally, I thought Bone Tomahawk, which is similar to this one where it simmers for what mm. feels like five, six hours and then explodes towards the end. Brawl Cell Block 99, halfway through, takes a turn. I was expecting something in this film and we don't want to go into spoiler territory or talk too much about the back half of the film, but that didn't happen for me. And instead, we have much more cynical trolling or provocative aspects in this, not least the casting of Mel Gibson. Mm. And we have to ask, are we happy with seeing Mad Mel in these roles now? I I think trolling is doing it a disservice a little bit. The talk is that Vince Vaughan, who was acting under Mel Gibson's uh, stewardship in Hacksaw Ridge, Mm -hmm. was the one that kind of turned... Uh, Gibson onto Zala's screenplay and convinced him it might be a sort of role for him. He's oddly well suited to this kind of character. So obviously you've got that background, his own cinematic background playing, you know, in Lethal Weapon. And, you know, it's not the first time he's played a kind of hardball cop. Mm -hmm. But obviously there is the off-screen side to Gibson, which the film doesn't directly address. But I think you go in with any pre-existing knowledge of that. It does add a certain shade of grey to his character and his performance. But I think the thing you've got to say about Gibson in this is just he is an extraordinary actor. And, you know, whatever you think of him as a person or his politics or anything else, I think he just really shines through in this as a as a strong, very masculine, slight throwback, actually. Yeah. Um, but as, a, as a, just a really compelling central presence. And just command the screen in a way that we don't really have similar leading men now, do we? In the way that he could in the 80s and still can turn on that magic. Sophie, were you in the pocket for S. Craig Zala with his previous films? Well, I have avoided him thus far. Specifically so? Um, more like the vibe around him, the word around his previous two films and indeed around this one is that I'll get to what I actually thought about it but given my expectations which were quite low and given that this film was my entry point I was a bit more surprised to see that he's actually a very good filmmaker mm-hmm. because the word that leaks is more around the ultraviolence. Like I heard about the guy who got cut in a certain body part I was like, you know what? I'm provoked enough in my daily life. I don't need to provoke myself by watching scenes of this nature. And so it wasn't that I was like going out of my way to boycott. It was more like there are many, many films from past and present eras to choose from, and I never chose him until this week. So yeah, so this was my this is my entry point to the film verse of S. Craig Zala. And were you surprised? Pleased? I was very mixed. Mm-hmm. I was impressed because when we review films like from a specific angle and boil them down to their politics and their message 
we don't spend a lot of time talking about the way films are actually assembled and created and he knows how to craft a scene he knows how to craft a sequence there's an extraordinary character uh, woman who's returning from maternity leave to go back to her job at a bank and her arc the way it's spun from beginning to end is just so on the one hand imaginative and on the other hand so bleak I was just there for those touches as for the whole enterprise the whole two hours 40 minutes uh, I wasn't there for all of it and to speak to the word you use Michael trolling yes I, there's forgive my French a ton of trolling in this movie not in the casting per se but in the way that these cops speak these are racist cops and the way that they're racist is, is presented in a way that is almost throwing down a gauntlet to the audience like daring them to be offended those aspects uh, I think felt a bit overpronounced mm-hmm. and there's a really great article I'd like to direct people to by Kay Austin Collins at Vanity Fair which points out that the way that the film is uneven racially is the sort of character treatment in addition to Vince Vaughan and Mel Gibson there's a black character played by Tony Kittles and he and his other black friend Biscuit played by Michael J. White they are getaway drivers and the way that these characters are treated is just less nuanced Mm -hmm. like Vince Vaughan and Mel Gibson's characters they get to be really chewy have so many angles and sides to them and these black characters especially Tony Kittles he's just got this kind of unrealistically like angelic motives (laughs) for what he's doing and it's just he's just far less substantial and this article by chaos and collins really goes deep into the character work and what it does or doesn't mean but yeah i just thought there was a lot more to this film than i ever anticipated there would be and i'm not here for all of it but i am here for some of it zala's an interesting character i interviewed him for his previous film brawl in cell block 99 which i think that and bone tomahawk are much kind of tighter genre exercises feels like he's Mm -hmm. flexing certainly like creatively and technically like that aspect of his filmmaking craft and here he's going for something a bit with a bit more of a narrative and a bit more of a kind of mission statement Mm -hmm. i think but yeah he's an interesting character he he's obviously very self-conscious and knows exactly what kind of buttons to push in his audience and he spoke very eloquently at the time about the film and about his craft and his influences and weirdly then went off on a, on a tangent and started berating I think it was the around the time that Moonlight and La La Land were vying for the Oscar and like out of nowhere quite critical of those films which took me back a little bit but seems like someone who has a very clear idea of the kind of filmmaker he is and the kind of statements he wants to make with his films and whether you agree with that or not is I guess up to you you can I think take away, and it's similar to Dirty Harry, what you bring into it and your own background will probably influence or colour mm-hmm. how you get on with the film. What statement do you think he's making with this one? I think this is a statement on like filmmaking as much as anything else. Like there is obviously like the social elements of the story. We should say that the setup is that these two cops, uh, Mel Gibson's character is, is filmed. Mm-hmm. Um, being very heavy-handed with a with a suspect and during an arrest, smashing and, a dude's head into he, the metal fire escape. Yes, and uh, a Latino guy. A, yes, a Latino guy. More pertinently, and this soon becomes a viral um, video. And Don Johnson, who is their superior, says, "Look, I don't disagree with your methods necessarily, but this is out there in the public. We've basically got to 
put your gardening leaf And that bit. whole scene that plays out between Don Johnson and Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson, that feels so on the nose. They're like, oh, in this current PC climate, yeah. what are we going to do? Yeah. So and it feels very heavy-handed, the dialogue in that I, I, scene. It's a bit heavy-handed. I think it's Starla really kind of pushing through his own script and saying directly to the audience, this is kind of my statement, these are my words. I think it's a, it's a comment on filmmaking in as far as... I don't know. A lot of movies these days seem to have to be about like need to have a social edge or a socially conscious skew, and movies seem to be about like educating and informing and enlightening. And this, I think, relishes those grey areas and those like morally ambiguous moments where you're not sure yourself kind of how how you even think about it at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a comment on maybe a, a loss of a certain type or certain mode of filmmaking. It's interesting. I suppose your experience of the film will really land on whether you feel that there are these grey areas that are relevant or interesting to pick through, or whether it is empty provocation. One thing I think we should say as well is Zala became known both in, in, in his previous two films as having maybe a key scene. Bone Tomahawk has one of the goriest payoffs. It's a western for two hours and then becomes a very gory horror film for the final 30 minutes. And Brawl in Cell Block 99 has a scene where Vince Vaughn pretty much stages the bonus stage from Street Fighter 2 and beats up a car. There isn't a similar key cheap thrills scene in this mm, film, would you say? There's a scene with some entrails. But in an enjoyable way. These are films I saw Brawl in Cell Block 99 at Midnight Madness in Toronto at the film festival, and that's a scene where people were throwing their popcorn in the air when Vince Vaughn beats up a car. This is a much less popcorn trash sort of film. That was the thing with his previous films. They felt like they fit that Midnight Madness slot mm-hmm. along with something like Mandy or yeah. where it's, you know, on a visual aesthetic level doing something very interesting and very distinctive, but they're giving you that gratifying, pure, schlocky entertainment. And this, I think, it shows a bit more restraint. And there is there are very violent moments in yeah, this, we should say. Certainly. And when they come, it's it's almost as a real gut punch because you're maybe not expecting them or you've been lulled into this you know, this slow burn um, rhythm of the film. Continuing the literal nature of his titles, you do see someone being dragged across concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, I think it's just one, it's a film which benefits greatly from the director showing a little bit more restraint. Yeah. Restraint is not a word I would use in connection with this <laughs> two-hour, 40-minute film. Restraint in terms of not feeling like he needs to deliver this big, like you say, bloody, gratifying payoff. Right, on a gore level, because I'd say it would benefit from being more restrained. I would love to see what he would do if he would stay in his lane somewhat and just make the type of old-fashioned genre film he wants to make without shoehorning in what, for me, is empty provocation. I think, well, we'll have to disagree on the empty provocation thing. This, to me, is like... So we'll come on to Dirty Harry, but that's the kind of film which people would say, oh... And I think Clint Eastwood himself has said, oh, well, you, you could never make this sort of film today. I think... Dragged Across Concrete is a sort of film that people don't make anymore. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or whether that's there's a reason for that, you know, it's a sort of film which he show you can make it today and there's probably good merit to make it today. Hmm. Let's put some scores on this. Adam, I'll come to you first. In anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. I think for anticipation, as, as much as I enjoyed his previous two films, I didn't come away from them thinking that this is a guy who's going to you know, who's ready necessarily to take the next step up narratively. So possibly a three 
for anticipation. I think maybe again a three for enjoyment. As we said, it's a real slow burn and at the time I wasn't really sure where I was with it, but I'm going to go five in in retrospect. Sophie? Well, two for anticipation, for reasons that I have covered earlier on in this very podcast. Enjoyment, I'm dithering between a three and a four because I did find myself really enjoying certain stretches of it. Once it got out of its own way, once the heist element begins, I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to give it 3.5. It would have had a four if it hadn't been for all that extra nonsense at the beginning. And in retrospect, yeah, I think that extra stuff leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. So two. So two, 3.5, two. Can we allow 3.5, Adam? Yeah, go on then. Just just, just for you, Sophie. Thank you. Oh, could I just ask a question of you guys? Sure. Okay, so S. Craig Zahler, and I mentioned K. Austin Collins. Uh-huh. Should I become S. Monks Kaufman? But Monks is your not your middle your name. Surname. Yeah, but so? What's your middle name? Patricia Rebecca. So you could so be S. S. Patricia Monks Rebecca Calvin. Monks Kaufman. That's a bit of a lot, isn't it? Well, it's up to you. Why, yeah, why don't you become S. P. R. M. K.? Uh, what about S. Monks Kaufman? That does sound like a, like a sort of Asian communist republic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was dragged across concrete. Some little bit of a mixed response here on the table, but let's see if our take on Greta is better. A young woman finds a handbag on the subway and returns it to its owner, a French piano teacher called Greta. A relationship starts to form, but it soon starts to seem that this mysterious and lonely widow has something to hide. Please. Jesus, what... What what do you want from me? I want to talk. Then talk to your daughter. I can't. She does not understand. What? What doesn't she understand? I'm lonely. Everybody's lonely. That does not mean that you get to follow people around and terrorize them. Everybody needs a friend. You have your Erica. No. No, you leave Erica out of this. You said you always stick around like chewing gum. Are you insane? Please. Let's try and start again. I love you. You don't even know me. Isabelle Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz there in Greta. Sophie, we love Isabelle Huppert, don't we? We. <laughs> we do. We, we do. Are we excited about her taking an English language turn? Uh, 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 okay. Yes. But the film, My Lord. <laughs> That's a, an anguished My Lord here. Oh, I'm so mad at the film. <laughs> Tell us what you really think. Yeah, okay, okay. Isabel, of course, is untouchable. She is great. But a wonderful Isabel Huppert performance does not a film make. I did not mean to say that in rhyming couplets. <laughs> however, I'm content that Strengthens that is your argument, I thank think. Thank you, thank you. Do you think she's wonderful in this? I think she's quite bad in this. Well, she's having fun. She realises that she's in a stupid film and is hamming it up. And what would have made the film better would be if everything was hammed up that much. The film doesn't realise it's stupid until it's too late. 
yet, but she knows the film's stupid from the very beginning. So, so lead us through this. So how quickly does it pop off into being uh, this pot boiler, bunny boiler thriller, or does it show its hand early? Or It, it does in a way. It starts off and Chloe Grace Moritz's character discovers a handbag on the subway mm-hmm. and finds... Isabel Huppert's character's ID card inside and tracks her down and, and gives it back. And they they start up this sort of unlikely friendship and you discover that there's each of these women is there's something, an absence in their lives that they're, they're hoping to fill. And they connect on that basis. But the film kind of shows its hand quite early. There's a moment basically where Chloe Grace Moretz discovers something in the woman's apartment. You can say what it is, it's in the trailer. I won't give it away here, but she discovers something which in any normal scenario you would run a mile and and she sort of does but then it takes a long time before the true nature of Isabel Hopet's character comes to the surface. There's a right. lot of teasing it out and quite unnecessary exposition I think and there's this back and forth about oh well maybe there's a rational reason for for this thing that's, that has been discovered which there clearly isn't and yeah for me that I just thought it was a bit preposterous to have this big reveal and then not really follow it through in the way that you would expect. Well, the main problem with the film is that it is entirely devoid of tension and tension development. What will happen in a moment where something terrifying is revealed is the character will just be there, Chloe Grace Moretz usually, and then she'll notice something amiss. And then the exact moment she notices it, there'll be like dramatic music <laughs> and like maybe a crash zoom or something. And that's it. What good thrillers run on is tension, building of tension, escalation of tension, de-escalation, playing with these things. This is just really flat. And then something increasingly outlandish will happen. But it it always comes out of nowhere, is signalled with the musical equivalent of the psycho music. Mm. I mean, not the musical equivalent of the psycho music, but like it's not the same strings. It's It's more like, bam, or something. <laughs> And you're like, oh, bam. But you don't have time to get scared because it's already happened. So it's just utterly devoid of tension. And if it wasn't for Neil Jordan's coup of having these two great actors there, it would just be a like straight-to-video right. Z-movie type business. On, on the tension note, there's a bizarre bit where... So Chloe Grace Moretz's character works part-time in a restaurant. She's recently moved to New York and is living in her friend's quite swanky loft apartment. And... Uh, Isabel Hooper begins to stalk her, tracks her down at this restaurant, and there's a bit where she just appears outside the restaurant. And it's meant to be the kind of big tension-building moment, what's going to happen, and then she just kind of stands there. And there's this whole scene played out where Chloe Grace Moretz is unable to basically get on with her job. She's distracted. The police won't help. All of her colleagues are just saying, oh, just ignore her. And in the background, there's just this little Isabel Hooper waiting. It is ridiculous, and... It completely drains any tension from from that scene. And and it's not enjoyable as camp? Well, or? this is it. Okay, so it's the sort of movie that it starts and you're, like, laughing expectantly, like, yes. And, but by the end, you're, like, laughing wearily and waiting oh. for death. It, it, it just... <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, initially, it seems like it could go in that direction. And Isabel Huppert, like, to take a moment away from trashing this film, Isabel Huppert... It just makes you wish you were watching a better Isabel Huppert movie. In a way, it feels like what she's doing is she's almost sending up 
all the cold, bizarre female characters that she's played in her back catalogue, of which there have been many. Like I was thinking of the piano teacher, I was thinking of Elle. And it feels a bit like her satirising her own choices. And that is enjoyable to a point, but it very much feels like she is out there on her own. Like, having a lovely time, so I don't feel sorry for her. I'm really having a great time. You know, there are certain... Uh, scenes in this film that are now forever emblazoned in my memory bank <laughs> things that she does a little dance that she does at a particular moment she's mesmerizing that is a, a pleasure of the film and she is camp but the rest of the film is just is too oblivious to the fact that it is not an actually functioning thriller to function as camp and at the same time i think with camp is that it's actually sincere this is it's kind of offhand. It, it just seems to be phoned in. Like mm. uh, I don't know. I don't, there's not. There's just not much to it, really. That's such a shame because Neil Jordan. If you look across his long filmography, he's been a master of outlandish cinema, from you know all the way back to Company of Wolves to Interview the Vampire. His most recent film before this was Byzantium, which was vampires in Hastings very much pushing this metaphor of vampires uh, drinking blood being a metaphor of sexuality and but doesn't really work with this one um, Mona Lisa which is one of, of my oh fantastic one of my favorite films yeah. I think of, of the 80s I mean Byzantium as a sort of three star but that's movie. a three star you can laugh with and it's been every six years away. or so since that seven years seven maybe years. yeah it feels like he's going through the motions a little bit as a filmmaker now as you say, Sophie, Isabel Huppert is this great weapon at his disposal. And I think the point at which he just lets her go off is where the film finally just something about it works. And it does get quite kind of silly towards the end. And enjoyably so, I think. I mean, you mentioned the piano teacher and there's, there is a scene where she is forcibly teaching Chloe Christmas how to play the piano, which raised a few wry smiles in the screening I was in. But, you know, she's obviously tipping her hat there or her, her sort of beret to those earlier roles. But... Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it's a shame that I think Jordan and I think the the screenwriter who's um, done a few kind of middling TV gigs and a, a couple of films before they're trying to craft as you say this thriller without realizing that actually what they've got is this psychosexual drama more in the vein of something like Elle the mm-hmm. Paul Verhoeven film which obviously has a lot more nuance to it and is more ambiguous as a story I think what they've got is a is a fairly kind of boilerplate thriller which they don't really follow through with. You mentioned the screenwriter there. I'd love to ask him about finding the the names for the characters, simply because this is a story, at least at the face of it, about a young woman making her way in New York called Frances, and the other character is Greta, which to me brings to mind Frances Ha, written by Greta Gerwig, starring Greta Gerwig as a character called Frances set in New York. It sounds almost like, where do I get some names from? Let's look at this list of films and grab the two that occur to me. Maybe that's just a subliminal thing. That he, it must just be, yeah. Because yeah. I guess there's no relation here. No. <laughs> Isabella Perry isn't dancing around to David Bowie in, in, in that scene. She is not. It's some classical music. She dances around to, is it Liszt or... She, well, she puts on some classical music. Mm. Oh, well. well was this, this is a classic film. Sophie, what's your scores? So, three, I was hoping for something, a meaty psychological thriller, which I, is something that I really enjoy. I love a psychological thriller. And then I was horrendously disappointed, <laughs> but I enjoyed Isabelle Huppert, enjoyment two. Then, in retrospect, I got really annoyed. And obviously, mm-hmm. I think some of my annoyance may have emerged on this podcast. We heard. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry if any viewers were offended by my guttural scream earlier on. But in retrospect, one, 
I'm warning people not to go and see it. Go and watch a better Isabel Huppert movie. Like? Please go and see The Piano Teacher. Oh, please watch it. Oh, yeah. So that's a good noise to end on, Sophie. Yeah. Adam. Yeah, well, I think one's a little bit harsh, but if you go in with low expectations and you just are there for the silliness at the end... Then not silly enough, mate. Sorry. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not silly enough. I would say a three for anticipation, probably a two for enjoyment and a two in retrospect. I think Neil Jordan's proved that he's no Brian De Palma with this one. But Isabel Huppert, she gives something, I think. And Chloe Grace Moretz, you know, off the back of, I think, probably her best performance uh, last year's Miseducation of Cameron Post. Mm. We'd love to see her working with more interesting directors who actually want to write roles for her. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bit of a shame, but... Greta and Dragged Across Concrete are in cinemas this weekend. Up next, we have Film Club, going back to the 1970s for Dirty Harry. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Now, Don Siegel's classic cop thriller Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood is Harry Callahan, a no-nonsense renegade on the trail of a killer who goes by the name Scorpio. As Scorpio's campaign of terror sweeps through San Francisco, Harry's violent methods come into conflict with the liberal politics of his superiors, the mayor and the district attorney. It was a huge hit at the time. Dirty Harry spawned a five-film franchise and continues to inspire many urban crime thrillers to date, including Dread Across Concrete. But its blunt political themes continue to cause debate. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? So we asked the Twitterati whether this was Clint Eastwood's most iconic role. Kevin Otterson suggested maybe outlaw Josie Wales or Million Dollar Baby instead, but there have been so many stunning body of work. Steve Grace thinks 
Clint's best performances in White Hunter, Black Heart. And Alex Nicholson here uh, decided to give us a visual aid. Said He said it was not even close for Clint's best performance. And Adam, could you describe what this picture is? It's the uh, infamous picture from, I think, the Republican Party conference from a decade or so ago of Clint shouting at an empty chair. We've all been there. We've all been there. Old man yells at chair. Yeah. Thank you very much for those comments. Let's talk about Dirty Harry, then. This is one of those films that is such an, an unalloyed classic in certain people's minds. What is it like revisiting it today, Adam? It's definitely an unalloyed classic in my mind. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I think it's amazing how visceral it is. Films in the 70s tended to have this slightly lo-fi, gritty, urban aesthetic. It fits the neo-noir, like, hardboard template in so many ways, but... I mean, you compare it to something like Point Blank, which I think is oh, yeah. my my favourite film of that decade. I think it came out a few... Uh, 1967 or so. something, yeah, a few years. Lee Marvin, of course, yeah. Yeah, um, it's got this almost like slightly psychedelic feel to it in places and obviously very, very much tapping into the political concerns of the day. And just at the centre has this amazing performance from Clint as the, the vigilante cop who's stalking this uh, psychopathic killer. Mm-hmm. The psychopathic killer, we should say, based on the Zodiac Killer, ripped from the headlines. And there's that interesting almost closing of the loop where years later when Fincher made Zodiac the movie, they go and see this film, Dirty Harry, mm. and it's Mark Ruffalo's character who's sitting through this film whilst he's actually trying to catch the Zodiac Killer. And there's a nice bit in this where Clint is just uh, walking down the street and I think Play Misty for me is on at the local picture there, which came out the same year, actually. Oh, well. Another Clint flick. That reminds me of Sully, the recent Clint film, which is set in, I think, the early 2000s. And is it, would it be even a million dollar baby? Like, but all of Times Square is bedecked in Clint movie posters. There's yeah, a bit where Sully, Tom Hanks is going on an early morning jog. Sully, I think, is like 2000, mm-hmm. when the actual incident it, happened it, the in like 2009 set, yeah, yeah. 10 or something. So, yeah. Sophie, what's your take on Actually, Harry? this was my first time watching oh, it. Oh, right. And? I thought I'd seen it, but I had not. You've, maybe, you've seen the, the classic liner, I'm sure. The Ask lines. yourself. <laughs> do you feel lucky? <laughs> well, do you, punk? Fantastic. And the rest of the film? For me, this is a movie star vehicle. Mm-hmm. I very much enjoyed watching Clint in his heyday. And another film from 1971, The Beguiled, also by oh, Don Siegel, is Sexiest Clint Ever. Mm-hmm. So I was quite excited to watch... Sexiest Clint ever, same year. <laughs> he's um, not as sexy in this. He's not as sexy in this for some reason. He's got a big gun. Blow your head clean off. Are you flirting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I was impressed to see him at this vintage doing his thing in his whispered, gravelly voice. I was very into that. The rest of the film I was somewhat underwhelmed by. I must say, I probably didn't watch it in the best conditions. I was watching it at home at night and quite conscious that my housemates were trying to sleep while I was basically embroiled in a gunfight. Every time they had a gunfight, I was like, lads, keep it down. And at one point, my housemate very politely texted me asking me to keep it down. So I I was quietly wishing there were less gunfights, not for cinematic reasons, for domestic harmony reasons. Okay. No, this is one you need to crank up, I think. Yeah, <laughs> double down on it. Yeah. What would Dirty Harry do? That's, that's what the vigilante do. cop in you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's significant that um, he says it twice in the film because it seems to me that it's almost... It feels like something the character himself has rehearsed and, you know, he uses it in these moments almost like a weapon mm-hmm. against these assailants. 
Um, and I know it's been interpreted in many different ways and, you know, people have kind of taken it quite literally as, as a sort of endorsement of the film's supposed conservative politics. And, yeah, I just wonder what you guys thought of it. For me, it just harks back to the way that those muscular 1970s screenplays would be written. Think about William Goldman's screenplays at sort of a similar period where they'd all hinge on a single line that would become quotable and could grab a zeitgeist, and that's exactly what that line, Dirty Harry, is. And it is nice that it ties back in together at the end, but it's also completely ridiculous police work <laughs> to do that. I can't believe he can ever get away with the paperwork after something like well, that. Well, yeah, his police work is, is very suspect throughout, and that's obviously a, you know, a sort of major plot point. But then, of course, it became a theme for the series. Was it the fourth or fifth one had Make My Day? They tried to make that into the iconic line, whether they were successful as this one, I don't know, it's up for debate. Sophie, are you a fan of that? I mean, you, you, you recreated it just a few minutes ago, but you're a fan of that line. Would you say my recreation was equally impactful as... I, I was trembling. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't tell. I, I, yeah, I, in, I lost track in all the excitement whether you'd shot five or six bullets. So, yeah. yeah. Well, do you feel lucky? Very rarely. Oh. <laughs> but do you think it has a conservative skew, the politics, the back half of the film? Well, uh, you know, Don Siegel always associated himself as being a liberal. Yeah. I don't necessarily think his films contradict that. It's a challenging film that is tapping into and in a lot of ways mirroring a lot of stuff that was going on at the time. I think it's very telling there's sort of panic or a fear about certainly urban society and this decay and also, you know, it's in this like post-hippie era and the, the killer actually is a very sort of lingering shot of the fact he's got a peace um, sign belt buckle mm-hmm. um, and he's this kind of deranged, psychopathic, like it possibly just tripped out on too much LSD or... In fact, his performance, Andy Robinson, is is just so wonderfully deranged. And it's quite it's quite scary, actually. It's it quite is. terrifying. I'd love to have been on set and see him kind of getting into that mode um, mm-hmm. every t- every time they they were ready to shoot. But and obviously, as a perfect four, you've got Clint, who is just so laser focused and cold, and you know gets on with the job. And also, he's obviously railing against the bureaucracy and overreaching authorities above him. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's fair to just put it in like one box or the other to say, oh, this is a conservative film or this is a, a left-wing film. I think that grows out of the fact that this is almost like a pop art spin on the pulp genre. You have these very exaggerated characters and you're not supposed to draw a social message. As you say, We're not. this is a sort of film that is not making a political statement because if it was, it seems to be suggesting that why should we have human rights because a psycho could exploit them and lie and go out and kill more kids. But what you do have is just this overabundance of style and formal experimentation in what is a very straightforward street-level thriller. I love the way that Siegel can transition from immaculately composed shots with cinematography, like the scene on the rooftop with the the red and blue lights that mm. are just washing over Clint. I love the, uh, that slow pull-out from the stadium as Oh, well. exactly. The, the, those aerial shots at the end. The fact that a film can work on three or four formal levels at once is supposed to be one thing. And then you also have Lalo Schifrin's music, which at this point is so cutting-edge in its use of funk rock or the kind of jazzy funk. Oh, it's yeah. great. And, um, and it's just so lean. We talked about Drag Toss Concrete, which is an hour longer than this. This really makes its statement and gets out there, and it's enjoyable mm. as a thriller. Sophie, you're making mm, noises. I don't think it was lean. It felt like a cartoon, yeah. for the reasons you were saying. But I found the plot actually somewhat unsatisfying in its permutations. 
We discuss it as a film about this equivalent to the Zodiac killer, Scorpio. Do we ever find out why he's called Scorpio? The damn hippie. <laughs> I don't think we do. Is he a Scorpio? He a Scorpio? Don't trust Scorpios. <laughs> I think it sounds cool. Yeah, I think it just sounds cool. Um, he writes to the press like the Zodiac killer did. But the the way that it unfolds is quite scrappy, actually. For me, lean means it's got this arc and the arc plays out and everything's synthesised. This didn't feel lean because it felt like before the Scorpio kicks into play, there's some establishing stuff around Clint's police work, which, as we've said, is unorthodox. And then it folds into this and then the Scorpio killer does this and then he does that and then he does this. And meanwhile, you've got these other elements of how Clint's police work is going down at HQ and I don't think it's a conservative film because built into the film are these questions like people are questioning the way he's operating and there are indeed consequences for him, very bad consequences all I'm doing is saying that I didn't feel lean, it felt kind of like weirdly unsynthesised and hmm. somewhat ad-libbed in a way That's interesting because I, I, what struck me watching it again this time was how often they would use a simple cut to traverse time and space often across a single line of dialogue or a conversation would move the, the, the plot on very quickly so maybe it does unravel maybe not in a, in a way that you'd want but this film ha- moves along a great clip I don't think there's ever a moment where it sags it's a very satisfying compelling film on that level it's a chase movie isn't it yeah and I think the ending is well my reading of it is it's supposed to be quite unsatisfying he gets this redemption I suppose over the criminal that he's chasing and it's quite a hollow feeling it's quite anticlimactic in a way it's not this big bombastic triumphant climax to the film you're left thinking well he kind of got the job done but not maybe how he wanted or not really you know justice hasn't really been served mm-hmm. in a way so yeah I think it's it's intended to be quite an, it's an unambiguous ending in a lot of ways but I think it's supposed to be quite unsatisfying that's, that's as well. quite interesting do we agree or do we think that this is Clint's finest hour you, you've mentioned The Beguiled I prefer The Beguiled yeah I think High Plains Drifter is one of my and, and another slightly contentious politically but yeah, just that is, I think, one of his best films and mm-hmm. best performances. For me, he's a major blind spot. I've seen some of those big hitters, the Leone films, which I think are fantastic, and the Dirty Harry franchise, Unforgiven. But every time I speak to our friend David Jenkins, who's very much a Clint fan, it seems that the well goes deep. Maybe that's a, a marathon waiting to happen. Yeah, he's, he's a big Clint booster. Uh, I was listening to last week's episode just on the way in here, and obviously David's saying that Clint is a a director who did a bit of acting back in the day but I think this this shows that really he was at that time working with some of the best in the business and people now like Don Siegel was was a, a pretty big name at the time mm-hmm. and you know much earlier in his career had directed things like Invasion of Body Snatchers and there's a film called Riot in Cell Block 411 or something mm-hmm. or uh, which is obviously Zala tips his hat to as well with Paul in Cell Block 99. He's someone who I think maybe doesn't get as much or isn't talked about as much as some of his peers, some of his contemporaries. But Clint was learning from the best back in those days and, you know, channeling a lot of what he learned mm-hmm. making these kind of films into his own work. And famously, The Unforgiven is dedicated to both Leone and Siegel, isn't it? And that's seen by many as Clint's finest hour, mm-hmm. biggest statement. I, I really want to see The Mule, his most recent film. I hear that's... I really like The Mule. Top tier Clint, you agree? Yeah. Did you get to see that, Sophie? I've yet to see The Mule. Should we go together? Let's yeah. do that. Anyway, that's Dirty Harry, film club this week. Let us know what you think if you do rewatch it after this. Up next week, superheroes are back. 
feels like it's only a couple of weeks ago that we had the last superhero films, but we're back in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for Avengers Endgame, the end of everything that's been brewing for over a decade now. Following that, we have Eighth Grade, a coming-of-age film, teen movie directed by Bo Burnham. And then for Film Club, we're looking back at maybe the fan favourites of the Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise to date. It's Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Let us know what you think about that film at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast, or via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Adam, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.